0: Of the day. I'll do my best to make it entertaining. Um, my name is Kevin and I'm an alcoholic. And uh, I think it's a great honor to be speaking for you. Um, yes, last year was just my first, uh, my first time here. And so I'm, I'm extremely grateful to Greg for asking me to come. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about the history of addiction treatment in the United States. And I have to tell you right now, this lecture is controversial. And you may not agree with everything I say, and and that's just fine, because I I could be wrong. Actually, I'm frequently wrong. I'm I'm starting to get pretty good at it, right? uh, But uh, there are some issues that I'd like to raise, and and essentially the the take-home message is that I think the answer to these problems is in this room. That's why I think every single one of you is worth your weight in gold in terms of getting us out of some of the problems that we're starting to see in addiction medicine. I'll just tell you a little background. Uh, I... uh, my specialty is aviation medicine. I was a flight surgery, uh, surgeon in the Navy. I took care of F-18 pilots uh, in California. And uh, somewhere in the course of that, I had a surgery and got addicted to Percocet and then very quickly moved up to intravenous Demerol. And uh, I tried very hard to quit. I called my state medical board. They didn't know what to do. And eventually the Navy found out. And uh, they were pissed. As you can imagine, they, uh, they didn't find it very funny. But they sent me to their long-term treatment facility for drug addicts. They have one. It's called Leavenworth. Okay?
1: <laughs>
0: and, and when you go from the back of an F-18 Hornet to a maximum security prison cell in about six months, it, it tends to get your attention. Right? And uh, I decided that I wanted to try and get to the bottom of this addiction thing. And I was, I was very grateful to the Navy. They, uh, they um, had given me some time. To, uh, to study and a uh, little, little time away from work and so I decided to use that year I was very lucky I was actually facing 26 years but I only got one so that's a program at work uh, and I decided to study everything I could about addiction and everything I could find poured into that prison mail room and stacked up in the corners of my cells and I read and I read and I read and, and what you're about to see is part of the product of that year of study I never cease to tell my patients that they got an excellent, fascinating disease. They could have gotten a boring disease. They could have gotten diabetes. But they didn't get diabetes. They got addiction, which has a history to it, which has a literature to it. Wars have been fought over this. And I'm hoping that that they'll see themselves as part of that history, because I really do believe that the answers to a lot of the problems that we've been facing lie with the addicts themselves. So... Let me show you a little bit about how the, the situation that we have right now came to be. First of all, let me ground you in the situation. I don't know if you've ever heard of this case, but it happened at the Medical University of South Carolina. This was a time when there was a lot of hysteria over crack babies, and the hospital wanted to do something about this. And so what they did is they went, the hospital officials, mind you, went to the district attorney and said, you know what, we think we've got a problem with women smoking crack. So if, our, if we have a woman come into our labor deck, and we suspect that she's smoking crack, we'll test her, and if she comes up positive, we'll turn the evidence over to you. And that's exactly what they did. These women were tested. If they came up positive, the police would come to the labor deck and take that woman off to jail within hours of delivery, sometimes with a pad between her legs. Now, what is important about this case is not that these women were mistreated. I expect that from law enforcement. I expect that kind of behavior from district district attorneys. What bothers me, what is the problem here, is that this idea came from doctors. People who are charged with the duty to defend their patients. The Supreme Court later ruled it an illegal search. You don't have to go to South Carolina, you can go to my backyard, you can go to Anaheim, California, where there is a woman who will pay pregnant women or, or excuse me, women addicts $200 if they will promise, if they will get voluntarily sterilized. Now, it certainly seems like a good idea. Everybody's praising this woman. Is there any chance that these might, women might get sober someday and might want to have babies? Did you ever see that movie Steel Magnolias? You know the, woman, the movie I'm talking about with Sally Field and, the, and Julia Roberts? What was that movie about? It was about a, a beautiful story about a woman who had very bad diabetes and against her doctor's advice, got pregnant, took the risk, got pregnant, had a normal baby, burned out her kidneys and died. Very sad. Did anyone think that maybe diabetic women who might in fact give birth to birth-defected babies should be sterilized? No. It is that disparity in treatment and the silence of medicine That is the problem I'm talking about and why I do believe the answer. So I'm going to make some very shocking statements here, and and, and I'll bet you some of them will be wrong. But the first one I'm going to say is that addicts are no more character defected than any other patients. Does that mean that they don't have character defects? Oh, oh no, I'm not saying that. Does does Macaulay... That's me, I'm Macaulay. Does Macaulay need to go to AA and admit powerlessness and unmanageability? Absolutely. Does he need to take a fearless and searching moral inventory of the things that he's done because of his addiction? Certainly. Does he need to make amends and grow spiritually? Absolutely. What I'm arguing is there is no variance. You will see these character defects in all patients. All patients could benefit from going through the steps. The stigmatization that we have against addicts that allows things like this NUSC case is essentially a direct consequence of physicians' refusal to defend addicts as patients. And as a result, there is a logical and ethical inconsistency at the heart of addiction treatment that will not go away and lastly, the characteristics that we tend to associate with addicts of irresponsibility, uh, of, of drug-seeking and dependency, are not actually problems with addicts. They are problems with the disease model. Now, let me try and make good on these shocking statements. We can break the history of addiction down into right. There's a fault line that goes right down to, in the middle. Before Harrison and after Harrison. Okay? and I'm referring to the Harrison Narcotic Act of 1914 the first federal level legislation that regulated drugs treatment before Harrison was essentially medical all right? doctors weren't sure what was going on addiction was rampant but what did you do if you had this problem you went to your doctor It was not something that you were hated for. It was embarrassing. It was something that you didn't talk about. It's kind of like that rash that you get in the middle of the summer, right? You don't tell everybody about it, but you go to your doctor, you deal with it with your doctor, and that's where it's handled, okay? Doctors saw addicts as patients. Treatments were non-punitive. And the stereotypes that we traditionally uh, associate with addicts did not exist. Who were these patients? Well, many of them were folks who were injured in wars and became addicted to narcotics as a result of their chronic pain problems, many of them were the, were the people who the patent medications marketed to. Many women, many women and their children, okay? It's, it's hard to get a good idea of the infant mortality that might have resulted from accidental overdoses of things for babies that were laden with heroin, morphine. But I'll tell you that the the consumer certainly liked it. I mean, look at the love in that child's eyes. I mean, he loves that stuff, right? This kid's about to break an ankle trying to get to that box, right? So who were all these addicts? It was a terrible time for addicts. We have a fraction of the problem now, but around the turn of the, of the, of the uh, 1900s, we had a terrible problem with addiction. Who were these people? Were they the fringes of society? Were they sociopaths and, and, and sexual deviants and black jazz musicians? No. Who were they? They were war vets and soccer moms. All right? They were the very heart of the society. The two demographics that politicians fight over today, trying to court. Okay? Here's a picture of essentially the four doctors who started American medicine, right? There's a picture hanging in uh, Johns Hopkins. That's Sir William Osler, okay? Uh, I can't remember which one is Welter Kelly, but this guy, that guy in the background, he's the guy of interest to us. William Halstead, right? We all know about this guy. We use Halstead retractors. Everything we do in the OR is, you know, could be traced to some of the things he did. He's the inventor of local anesthesia, okay? But what most people don't know about Halstead besides the fact that there are buildings named after him at Johns Hopkins, is that he was a terrible, awful, intravenous cocaine addict, Okay, right? He was trying to experiment with cocaine with two of his friends. They were shooting patients up. They were shooting each other up. They were shooting themselves up. If a cat walked by their lab, I'm sure it got a butt full of cocaine, right? But the problem was that they very quickly got addicted. In fact, Halstead's two friends died. What happened? Well, Halstead's skills started to deteriorate. People started to complain. And Osler did an intervention on him. They kidnapped him. They took him to a schooner in the Caribbean, sailed him around trying to get him off this cocaine. It didn't work. He broke into the captain's storeroom, and stole the cocaine. When they were in Port, he shimmed down the roof, went out in town, got cocaine. And then all of a sudden he got better. And they took him back to Hopkins. And everyone said, Wow, Dr. Hull says he's all better. What'd you do? Well, they kind of they didn't tell you anything, but uh, yeah, he's better. And he went on to this brilliant career in surgery for which we know him for now. What Osler did was he left a diary to the Hopkins Archives and said, Don't open this until fifty years after Halstead's death. And the day came, they opened it up. What was it? It was a record of Dr. Halstead being and feen and feen and feen and feen and His entire career he was essentially maintained on narcotics. Now, that is probably not the best diversion program. I will agree with you. All right? But it was an option. It was an option that today we really do not have, okay, except for, uh, well, this new office-based opioid therapy. So, in other words, what I'm saying is is that there was no stigma, there was no prejudice, no venom against these addicts. And and we can blame the creation of that venom on the temperance movement, very interesting movement, fascinating movement. We really forget about how powerful this movement was. I, I would put it to you that much of the wording in the big book, which is gracious and sensitive and beautiful, I believe that a good deal of that was because the people who wrote it were gracious and sensitive and beautiful, but a great deal of it, was trying to not open up the wounds that the temperance movement created. They were trying to avoid the language in 1935, that had started Prohibition, which ran 1919 to 1933. But this was a collection of a whole bunch of folks that you wouldn't expect would have anything to do with each other, right? Religious fundamentalists, uh, journalists who were trying to expose the Patent Medicine Trust, okay? Reform-minded politicians, suffragettes who understood the connection between domestic violence and, 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 and alcohol and drugs. There were lots of groups, There was well, there, even this group, okay? That was an early temperance group, among other things, right? Now, we can blame the temperance movement for this, this, this silliness, okay, this idea that if we pass really good laws, we can get rid of disease, we can get rid of poverty, we can get rid of crime and raise the moral fiber of our society, but I'm not sure if that's true. Because I think these people had a better idea of what was going on, even than we did. I think there's no guarantee in history that you're going to have a positive trend. Okay? It's entirely possible for history to go backwards. And I think these people understood this problem better than we did. Look at that sign right there. Let me blow it up for you. The law must recognize a leading fact. Medical non-penal treatment reforms is drunkard. That's a very, very, very uh, cutting-edge, uh, controversial statement. These people understood it better. Oh, how'd that kid in there. That's my new puppy. I just got him. Yeah. Sit, Freddy. Good boy. <laughs> Your dog can't do that. Just a little longer, folks. Okay, good. All right. Back to work. So what is the source of this stigma? Where did it come from? Okay, um, I would say that before Harrison, folks didn't really know, and they didn't really much think about it either. Here's a temperance cartoon about you know what leads to the drunkard's grave. Apparently, it's mom's fault, right? The home of an indulgent mother, and each step is a different thing: eating between meals. Okay, what do you think of that, Judy? Uh, plenty of patent medications, pickles and pork, very dangerous. Mexicanized dishes and pepper sauces, and it moves on to tea and pop and soda and cards, and eventually you're dead. Okay? I don't know, maybe, maybe A got it wrong Maybe it shouldn't be principles uh, other than personalities It should be maybe uh, principles other than pickles and pork I'm not sure okay? but The point is, is that no one really knew what the cause was And so, if we want to understand how this happened We have to know a little bit about the causal model that is used in medicine And what is that? Well, that's the disease model It's a fairly new model It's only about 100 years old It was starting to emerge at the turn of the century okay? It came from germ theory And the history of addiction treatment parallels the development of the disease model very, very well. You can't really understand one without the other. And so again, it always comes back to this question. This is the most critical question in addiction medicine. Is this really a disease? Because i got to tell you, i got a lot of sympathy for the arguments that say, No, it's not a disease. That's a cop-out. It's a behavior, not a disease. I don't know if you saw that John Stossel report on 2020 last month. Very, very, very frustrating thing to watch. But it's very important to listen to the libertarian arguments because they must be understood. They can all be defeated, right? A lot of people say addictions to disease, right? At our treatment center, we do the same thing. Addictions to disease, addictions to disease. The patient is entering treatment, writing out their check, and we say, hey, did we mention that addictions to disease is this? But very few of us actually know why. Very few of us can actually say why addiction is a disease. We will say, well, because the AMA says it's a disease. That's not a good reason. Well, because it kind of looks like a disease. That's not a good reason either. We have to be able to answer this. And this question is essentially a question about causality. I'm not arguing that the behavior of addicts is unpleasant. Clearly it is. They can be frustrating, revolting, criminal. What I'm arguing is, can we be certain that, is what, that what is driving that badness is, in fact, some intrinsic essential badness in the addict. I don't believe it is. Let me show you what the disease model is. I've I've really thought about this. I've tried to come up with the the most stringent requirements for the disease model, and essentially this is is the schematic I've come up with. You've got an organ, it doesn't matter what it is, collection of tissues, whatever, a bunch of cells that do the same thing, and it gets, bells, 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 cancer develops, an infection, a bullet goes whizzing through it, whatever. And as a result of that defect in that organ, you will see... Symptoms, and you're going to see the same symptoms in all the patients with that defect in that organ what is that? that's a causal model now I know that doesn't look like much okay? that's everything we do in western medicine I've just put all of western medicine on the board and the idea is is that you go here you don't go there you go here and doctors right around the time of the turn of the century right around the Flexner Report when the AMA was really starting to coalesce they realized they had a good causal model this was going to change everything and so they started applying the disease model to things like broken legs how does, a disease, how does a broken leg fit the disease model well you got a femur you get a fracture and pretty much if you get that defect in that organ you're going to get the symptoms everybody gets the same ones of a broken leg there are about four screaming bleeding bones sticking out disability okay and essentially where do we go how does this model work do we go here no we go there we go there and these go away so we take the patient we fix them and in, t- in time, those symptoms go away. Now, that's an illness that we can cure. Let me show you one that we can only treat. This time, the organ in question is a pancreas, right? And certain cells die. They usually produce insulin. And as a result of that defect in that organ, you get the symptoms of diabetes, blurred vision, coma, stuff like that, right? We can't cure this, but we can apply the disease model to it. It clears away the crap about pickled pork and whatever and gets us to the actual cellular material Physical cause. We replace the insulin and no longer do diabetics die. That is a powerful model. It has doubled the human lifespan in only a hundred years. It has changed everything about the way we live. It has taken doctors from something of a joke of a specialty and made them one of the most powerful professions in human history. But would you like me to show you the real power? this model let me show you the real power of a disease model you see every day in my home state California diabetics get their sugar out of control it's hard to be a diabetic you have to take your finger stick you got to test your, you can't have a piece of chocolate cake right now if a diabetic has a piece of chocolate cake that's not a crime chocolate cake's good I like chocolate cake you like chocolate cake we all like chocolate cake but if a diabetic has a piece of chocolate cake sugars go through the roof blurred vision coma it happens all the time very common every now and then it happens to the diabetic while they're driving And every now and then, someone will die in the motor vehicle accident that results. Would you like me to show you the power of the disease model? The power of the disease model is, you and I have never heard of an organization called Mothers Against Diabetic Drivers. Okay? Now, now I want to make this very clear. I am not trying to make a joke at the expense of a mother who lost their kid to a drunk driver. I've got a lot of sympathy for that mother, I assure you. But... As a public health doctor trying to figure this thing out, what does it take to get into the disease club and all the rights and privileges that go along with that, I've got to ask myself this very distasteful question. What's the difference between that body killed by the diabetic and that body killed by the drunk? Because that one's cold and dead, and that one's cold and dead, and that one's mother's crying, and that one's mother's crying. Why is the person who killed this body, the diabetic, getting their license taken away, and the person who killed this body, the alcoholic, going to prison for years and years and years and years and years? I'll show you because we see the cause of this body's death. We know that there was no specific intent on the part of the diabetic. There is no insulin-deficient immorality involved here. There's no diabetic personality at work here, all right? There aren't diabetic gangs wandering Los Angeles County, creating havoc wherever they go, all right? We know that this terrible, tragic accident was due to the cellular defect in this person's pancreas. And so what do we do once we know cause? We have compassion. But you see, the problem with addiction is, its cause is not easy. This model favors easy organs and simple causality. And one of the things that doctors realize is, we've got a good model, but we've got to figure out right now what's a disease and what ain't. Who are we going to see and who are we going to wash our hands of? Who are our patients? Who are we going to treat? Now, they could see how diabetes fit the model, okay, they could see how a broken leg fit the model, okay, those are patients, we'll see that, we've got a field called orthopedic surgery, we've got a field called endocrinology, all right, but addiction, you see, back then they didn't know what was going on with addiction, it's a hard disease to figure out, what was the organ, some folks were saying it was the brain, some folks were saying it was the liver, they didn't know. What's the nature of the defect? Hadn't a clue. And the symptoms of addiction, if you just look at the symptoms, they don't look like, 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 like. And so in the absence of that knowledge of causality, badness was assumed. Specific intent was assumed, and doctors made a decision that affects every day of your and my life. Addiction is not a disease. And overnight, all research stopped, all treatment innovation stopped, and all advocacy on the part of addictions for their addicted patients stopped. They washed their hands of it, they walked away, they said, we got other patients to see, diabetics, people with broken legs, we don't handle this anymore. Does that mean that addiction just went away? No, it meant that another group in our society had to come in and handle the problem, and that group is called the criminal justice system. And so today, if you should be walking across the street, I hope not, but if you should be walking across the street and you get hit by a bus, and you break your leg, don't you worry. We're going to take you to an ER. This is the year 2003. You're going to be just fine. We've been working on broken legs for 100 years. If you should tomorrow get diabetes, well, we can't cure that, but don't you worry. We're going to take you to a doctor's office in the year 2003. we got all kinds of things. can't cure it, but you're going to be just fine. You get addiction, you get into a time machine, and you go back 100 years because we haven't been doing shit. And that's not the addict's fault. If ever we could figure out how addiction fit this model, if we could figure out the organ involved, what part of the brain say, what the defect was, and somehow causally link that defect, that organ to those terrible, awful, revolting symptoms, then addiction would fit the model and it would be a disease. And everything would change. And for a hundred years we've been unable to do that. And so what happened was, just a few years after Flexner, doctors realized that the disease model was a good model. However, it favored simple organs, okay, they had tried a a theory with uh, transporting serum from an addict to a non-addict, but it didn't work, so the disease model must be wrong, they just forgot about everything. They were sensitive to charges of iatrogenic addiction, there was no readily available treatment, there was a great feeling of pessimism about addiction, and addicts are simply difficult patients. And so doctors walked away. And with no one to defend them, within just a couple years, Harrison was passed. Now, at first, Harrison didn't look all that bad. It looked simply like a, like a tax law, like a, that's what it was built as, an information collecting law. We're just writing down names here, okay? But it was enforced by the Treasury Department. The Treasury Department has men with badges and guns. And so within a very short period of time, doctors who were maintained, who were taking care of addicts, okay, were arrested. And a number of Supreme Court decisions essentially said, addiction is not a disease, you cannot treat it, these people are criminals, and maintenance became a crime. Until methadone came along. Which was a very poor substitute. So what Halstead had been treated with, no longer. An entire area of treatment was shut down because of this law. And then all the other laws that created the drug war essentially stemmed from Harrison. With the disease model as a causal model off the table, then it was time for other models to be used. Now, the disease model is only one causal model of disease, okay? There are all kinds of others. Here's a real stinker, okay? The moral model. The cause of what you're seeing is because the person gave in to a temptation. They committed a sin, okay? Here's another model which has problems. The cause of what you're seeing is some kind of personality problem, okay? There are character defects involved. Okay. very powerful model still with tremendous utility okay. uh, and psychiatrists were really starting to come of age and they wanted to have more commentary on, on social events so they, had to, they were armed with this new model and so they started to, to weigh in here's a model that we use in public health all the time it's a good model, it's a robust model it's a well supported by research model but essentially, what it said was the cause of the disease you're seeing is because a person grew up in some kind of social environment. They, they, their mommy screwed up, okay? Uh, they, they, they run around with a bad crowd. Someone modeled drinking behavior, okay? Essentially, though, when you get right down to it, these other causal models believe in one thing. Essentially, the cause of addiction is just badness. When we talk about the morality of addicts, what do we mean? We mean bad morality. When we use the word addict personality, okay? What do we mean by that? We mean bad personality, a personality we don't like and that needs to be changed. All right. When we talk about the social learning model of, of addiction, we mean bad social environment. All right. Would you believe me if I told you that urban heroin addicts have a that they actually form family units? that they actually share each other's drugs and and other resources? Would you believe me if I told you that there was a a body of literature behind urban heroin addiction? Now, I'm not saying we should all run out and join the urban heroin culture, all right? But what I'm saying is that a lot of our automatic a priori assumptions that this is just about badness have got to be challenged. And and I'll start with our treatment center. Because we say we're using a disease model when the patient is writing their check, but we are, in fact, not. Because as soon as things get clinically difficult... As soon as the patient doesn't comply, we fall back into a different model—not the disease model, but sort of a, a hodgepodge of these three models, all cobbled into one, which I have a name for. I call it the scumbag model. All right, Which <laughs> right? <laughs> Essentially, you know, these people are just scumbags, right? You know, and when the patient doesn't comply, okay, when they don't, when they don't give in, we use the scumbag model, and what treatment is driven by the scumbag model? Punishment. The minute we fall back into punishment, we have shown that we have now departed controlled flight, as we used to say in the Navy. The patient is now being uh, submitted to the scumbag model. There's a problem with these other causal models. They're wrong, okay? The moral model used to be used to describe schizophrenia, except they called it witchcraft back then, and the cause was an evil demon. Dead wrong. And think about the patients, think about the women who were burned at the stake because these doctors picked a bad model, right? The psychoanalytic model. Well, it's a good model. I don't mean to, you know, totally trash it out, but it has been wrong. It has been wrong. When I was in medical school, we assumed that pelvic ulcer disease was caused by an ulcer personality. Turns out that's not true. It's caused by bacteria. Oops. (laughs) Think about all the people who went through gastric surgeries or went through aversion therapy with burn marks where the electrodes were to get them, to behavior modify them out of the ulcer personality. Medicine owes an apology to those patients, because we picked that model. The social learning model, good model, it has been used against patients. There used to be a belief that the people who get cholera, they're weird, they're strange, they're Catholics, they're Native Americans, and they just don't teach our kids the way we do. And the last thing you want to do is get rid of cholera, you just want to contain it in a ghetto. And the model actually made things worse. You see the problem? You pick a bad model and terrible, awful things can happen to sick people. And so, what essentially these three models together did was they created an idea called essentialism, that there was an essential characteristic in these addicts that you could spot addicts, you could pick them out of a lineup if it was an army uh, recruiting station or something like that. Or at Ellis Island. They had certain predisposing variables, all right, and what I'm saying is, is that that variance did not, in fact, exist. Some of the early research was done on this place, at this place right here. This is my old home, all right? The United States, United States Disciplinary Barracks in Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. They brought me to this, uh, to this door right there on a chilly November night in 1997. And let me tell you something. <laughs> they brought me in chains in a white uniform with three chasers. And guess how we got from California to Kansas? Commercial air. <laughs> You want an exercise in humility, you ought to try that sometime. Try walking through an airport in chains in a white uniform. I don't care how busy people are, they'll stop and watch, okay? (laughs) That crowd will just part like the Red Sea, you know? People point and stare, mothers grab their children, and they speculate on the nature of my crimes. Spy, serial rapist, who knows, right? No, just another garden-variety addict going off to America's gulags. This was... uh, this is the building, actually, that General Custer was court-martialed in. I don't know if you can see the wall around it, okay? So this is the courtyard. This is the castle here. This right there is sixth wing. We lived in the basement, all right? There were about 1,500 inmates. Uh, of those, there were about 65 officers, all right? Of those 65 officers, six, count them, six were physicians, all right? Apparently, we're a bad crowd, you know? Don't mess with us. We'll cut you, Okay? <laughs> And then we'll build you, right? Which is the only sort of thing. <laughs> So, and, and every day in the morning, they would get us up and take us out this big steel gate here and we'd go off and, uh, and, uh, on the lawn mowing detail. We'd go off and mow, you know... Uh, golf courses and stuff like that. And I was, I had the leaf blower. Okay? And I gotta tell you, I was good at leaf blowing, right? I was good. Because, you know, you can't just point that thing anywhere, okay? You can't just blow grass clippings all over the place. It takes a, it takes a little wrist action. You gotta be careful, okay? You gotta lift them in a sort of cushion of air and move them over and then drop them. Lift, move, drop. Lift, move, drop. It takes a physician's hand, you understand, right? You don't want to give this uh, this leaf blower to a sex offender. They have no taste of this. They'll just blow the grass all other place Right? it takes a doctor you understand sex offenders are very good at edging though for some reason I don't know why so a
1: lot
0: of a lot of the early it was a fun time let me tell you it was the funnest year of my life I gotta tell you um, a lot of the early research on addicts was done here on, on prisoners until this place could be built which is the United States Public Health Service Hospital in Lexington, Kentucky. This was a hospital built, well really a prison built, to haul, haul, hold all the people who were now being convicted under Harrison, many of them doctors who refused to comply. Okay? Make no mistake, that is a concentration camp. And terrible, awful, horrible experiments were done on drug addicts. Okay? And one of the people who ran this thing, was a doctor by the name of Lawrence Kolb. Now, Lawrence Kolb was not a bad man. In fact, he cared very deeply about addicts and and thought that punishment was wrong. But he did this early research using this brand-new, powerful psychoanalytic model and essentially what he found was that there were two kinds of addicts. There were the, the accidental addicts who got addicted, uh, you know, because of the surgery or something like that, and then the vicious addicts, addicts who who, associate, who were associated with vice, who used drugs because it felt good, right? And these people, these people were character defected, right? He was the first one to use that term, character defected. They're inherently narcissistic, inherently dishonest, inherently antisocial, and they use these immature defense mechanisms. The problem was is that that... What Kohl's uh, ideas were then taken and used as a weapon by law enforcement to further cement the punitive model. Right? This was the power. This was the standing model to explain addiction in the 20s. It was the standing model, the most influential model to explain addiction when pen was set to paper by the old timers. And those words crept into my beloved big book. They're the only two words I disagree with. Well, yes, addicts have character defects, but not any more than any other patient. What's the the problem? If addicts like me, like McCauley, don't take care of their character defects because of the physiology of the disease, I will die, right? But there is no variance. This research was not done by many doctors on thousands of patients at many different sites. It was done by one doctor, on 44 patients who are already in prison. That's called selection bias, confounding, it's about as bad as science can get. If you want to check my work on this, if you think my language is a little too strong, I recommend that you read this book. It documents very, very carefully exactly what I'm talking about. It's written by a a historian at Carnegie Mellon who also helps run a needle exchange program in Pittsburgh. So now, now you had this idea that addicts were bad, okay? And so you had to have propaganda to show everybody that they were bad. This is where the idea of addicts as sociopaths was manufactured and sold. We don't question it today, but as a matter of fact, it was created. Here's a movie about a doctor, upstanding citizen, who decides to dabble in narcotics and becomes a terrible, awful dope fiend. okay? Can you imagine that something like that would happen, here is actually pulp fiction, all right, showing what the, what the typical addict is like. I don't know if you can read it, but it says Pitifully exposes the depravity of the true addict, who takes lovers without number, performs every heinous vice in order to embrace her one true love, the needle. Now, so you can add it. Uh, this is my most hated statement in addiction treatment addicts can't love. What kind of arrogance would one human being have against another that they could tell them that they couldn't love? I think if you back up from the stigma a little bit and really listen to addicts, listen to the way they talk about the drugs, listen to the things that they write about their drugs, I think it should be obvious that addicts love with their whole hearts. They love with every last cell of their hearts. It's the object of their affection that's at issue here, right? But if you clear yourself of that stigma and listen to addicts, they are wonderful, wonderful people. Heroin addicts, extremely sweet people, defenseless against the pain of the world. And it washes over them like a hot ocean. And what do they do? They take it on. They try and take it all on and make it go away. And it doesn't work. And so if your dominant problem is the pain of the world, what better drug to use than an analgesic? You give them those defenses, you get them to AA, help them manage their stress. They are beautiful, wonderful, decent, loving, exquisitely sensitive. So treatment after Harrison was characterized by this idea uh, of the vicious addict, okay? the attachment of criminality to addiction, which is only partially true, the use of punishment in lieu of treatment, medical pressure, was nowhere to be found, and then this term, character defense. Now you had some exceptions. You had this saint right here who said, I don't know, I like these people. I'm I'm looking at them, and you know, it sure looks like a disease to me. I wonder what will happen if I just treat it like a disease. Well, people got sober. One of them was William Griffith Wilson. And you had this guy. who said, well, I don't know. I've just got a hunch here, but I think it's a disease. Now, he and so forth could not prove this. It was a hunch. But they put their words, they put their ideas down. And then you had these two people. I don't know if you know who these two people are, but they were real heroes. They were willing to take in addicts at a time when no one would touch them, when no one would even mention them, and they were willing to treat them as patients. Marie Niswander, uh, the, the Lowenson text, is dedicated to her for good reason. She wrote a book called The Atticus Patient, which, i got to tell you, includes a lot of this, you know, this uh, character defect stuff, but it was the first time that anyone had ever really listened to the narrative of addicts. So, after Harrison, treatment went in two directions. Treatment for the rich, treatment for the poor. Okay? (laughs) Treatment for the rich essentially used disease model causation. Now, sometimes it slipped back into punishment, that's true, but it used medical detoxification. Medicine, well, since it didn't have a lot, it co opted AA for its own purposes, all right? And I think that that's where a lot of the trouble started, okay? Uh, it was completely out of the reach of most Americans. To this day, we have beautiful treatment centers, wonderful work. Gosh, it's just gorgeous. You, you go to these places, it just brings a purity eye. Have you seen Betty Ford's new children's building? Oh, my God. What a wonderful, wonderful thing, except that it's out of the reach of most people, and the technology does not transfer easily, okay? And so we're going in two directions to the point, we may get to the point, where we literally cannot bring them back together. Here's one of these treatments for the rich, and yes, Bill Wilson was rich, okay? This is the Charles B. Downs Hospital. What most people don't know about Towns is that he was actually a profiteer off addicts. He he had a good idea, he wanted to make some money, and so he started this chain of hospitals, Because he had a good recipe to get people through detox. Now, it was a hell of a recipe. It included atropine, hyacinth, all kinds of and hallucinogens, and things like that. And so the idea is you came in there and they inject that with you and you hallucinate so badly that when you were done, you went home and said, I'm never going to drink again, right? It didn't really work. Bill Wilson went through it twice, I think, maybe three times. And so it was in one of these rooms that he had his spiritual experience. The white light, the presence of God, and somehow after that, the craving was just different. Things were just different. He felt some serenity. What I want to know is, with the stuff they were shooting into old Bill, why do you only have one spiritual experience, right? (laughs) He should have been having it every 15 minutes, right? But again, that idea that you could essentially change the meaning of the drug, perhaps even with another drug, was off-limits. I'm sure some of you know that Bill Wilson, trying to figure out how to have that thunderclap spiritual experience, experimented with LSD towards the end of his life. Now we've got a new treatment, very interesting treatment. It's a hallucinogen, Ibogaine. Can you do this research in the United States? Absolutely not. Why? Harrison. An entire area of medicine, an entire area of treatment shut off because of the prejudice against these patients. Treatment for the poor involved this, well, these people are just scuzz bags causation. It involved a lot of lay treatment, people who you know really had no qualifications whatsoever. That had its strengths and some weaknesses. Okay? Uh, the responsibility was put entirely on the patient. You had organizations that had agendas other than the patients involved. All right? And generally, this treatment tended to be punitive, And highly exploited. This guy. I'm not even going to get started. But i got to tell you, I grew up in the Bay Area, and I remember this. These people were bad people. They accumulated weapons. They sterilized people. Because these were addicts who had nowhere else to go, and doctors did not defend them. And so they were exposed to this kind of sociopathy. Not addiction. That's a sociopath. And you want to know what just amazes me? is that most of the TCs are proud of their heritage. <laughs> they draw themselves in the center. They're, they're very happy to, to, to say, we do the same things. We have the game, and we have you know this, uh, this emotional haircut. That is going to stop. Because it happens to be illegal. And if you, again, if you think my words are too strong, if you think I'm way out of the limb here, I highly recommend this book, which is written by an investigative journalist who also happens to be a doctor. And he essentially did a lot of research on Walden House in San Francisco. You read that book you'll never think the same way about TC's again. This guy by the way, this guy by the way is the guest of honor at the C-Sam Con- come on, come on, come on. Come on, come on, come on. So this punitive treatment essentially involved aggressive confrontation because you've got to break down this denial, All right, the use of behaviorist medicine. Now, I know that interventions, some of them are just wonderful. I've heard incredibly beautiful things out of the words of interventionists. We want to honor you. We want to show you what we feel. You know, we want to do this you know, to, to you know, help you. And, and I think that's great. But interventionists, interventions that use emotional coercion or partial information or, or, or already select the treatment before the patient is decided, right? Bags packed, tuck it bought, bed waiting. They happen to violate the law. And you can sue for damages. It is not allowed. There's something called informed consent. All addicts are in denial. I don't know about you, but when I was in medical school, the professors that taught us were very, very worried about the trend in medicine towards the use of, of too many diagnostic tests, the overuse of diagnostic tests. They were worried that, that addict that, um. That doctors weren't listening to their patients. They told us, if you just listen, the diagnosis will be clear. Well, addicts, all addicts are in denial. This is a million times worse. Because what it really says is, all addicts are liars. And not only do we not listen to our patients, but the little bit that we do listen to, we brand the lies. That's got to stop. There's a long history of coercion treatment. Okay, I don't have a problem with coercion treatment. It's done usually by judges or by public health officials. But you may not coerce treatment if you are a treatment center or an individual therapist or interventionist. These public health departments are delegated police power by state and federal constitution. You cannot do it if you are a private entity. It's against the law. And, of course, the predominance of utilitarian ethics, hey, it's not pretty, but we got to do it. The law has been very specific about protecting patients from exactly that. Now, things got a little bit better for a while in the 70s, sort of the golden age of treatment, and then things got much, much worse. And it involved the death of this man right here. Anyone know who this is? Ren Bias. That's exactly right. And one of the important things that, that's to notice in the picture is that hat right there, because he was the first round round pick, that pick for the Celtics. And when he died, what happened was these folks were hearing from it from their constituents. Now, this was at a time where there was a powerful Republican president, actually first Reagan, then Bush, and the Democrats were... were with a small of power. And they had to have a hot-button issue to grab back power. And they went back to Massachusetts, and they heard what their constituents were saying, and they said, drugs, it's drugs, we can take this to the ballot box. They went back to Washington, they had all kinds of hearings, nobody really thought about it, and they started passing these laws left and right. And everybody had a piece of it. And so what they were trying to do was essentially battle with this administration to see who could be tougher on drugs. And it went back and forth and back and forth. This man, by the way... <laughs> This man, by the way, is running for president, okay, and the re- result was this pogrom right here called the Anti-Drug Abuse Act. This was written at a time of crack hysteria, much of it racist, okay, treatment was entirely turned from, funding from, uh, uh, from, was entirely turned from treatment to law enforcement, okay, the use of informants, what's special about uh, informant testimony in the federal system, hearsay counts can't do that in the state system. So if I say, Scott, I think you're a drug addict, and I go to a federal prosecutor and I say, I saw Scott, you deal me drugs, he could essentially take Scott to jail, or at least go to trial. And that caused all kinds of horrible corruption. But the thing that really did it was this thing right here, mandatory minimum sentences. Okay? Because what that did was it took the discretion for sentencing out of the judge's hands and gave it to the prosecutor. And now there was no sentencing phase anymore. You had a guilty verdict, jail. And very, very draconian sentences. And so what you got was this, this thing that is really amazing piece of our history. Do you know that you cannot turn on TV, cable TV, on any given night and not see one, two, sometimes three shows on one subject? Prisons. Prisons of the past. Supermax facilities. These are not documentaries. They are advertisements. There are advertisements for an industry that is trying to send a message. America, be very afraid. Be very afraid of drug addicts. You need our our product to protect you. We now have two million people incarcerated in the United States. Do you realize that that is the highest per capita incarceration rate in human history? No people has incarcerated more of of its citizenry than the United States. Not the Romans, not the Nazis. You want a public health issue? You want a reason to fight? That's it. That has got to stop. And again, if ever we could figure out how addiction fit this model, everything would change. And addiction, well, would be a disease. And for a hundred years we haven't been able to do that until now. Now we've finally got enough pieces of the puzzle that I can tell you how addiction is a disease. First of all, from the old studies, we know, I'm going to go through this very quickly, we know that mice do not self-administer drugs to the areas that might involve choice or things like that. Drugs work in a deep, deep part of the brain called the midbrain, a non-choice, non-conscious part of the brain. And they will continue to dose themselves with cocaine to the point of death. What does this mean? It means that mice can get addicted to drugs. Mice! Mice have no personality. Mice don't care how their mommy mouse raised them. There are no mouse gangs that we've got a problem with in Orange County, right? So mice can get addicted to drugs, but none of these other variables apply, all right? Mice are not sociopaths, okay? And so what the old studies do is they separate correlation from causation. Remember, we're always trying to get at causation for addiction. Are there some things that go along with addiction, like personality problems? You bet, but they cannot be the cause. Because we've got lots of people who are terrible, terrible addicts, and they score fine on personality tests. We've got a very powerful study done by George Valiant, a prospective study on a huge N-size, n -n 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 number. That shows that there are no predisposing characteristics that lead to addiction. So what happened in old studies? Well, the drug became survival at the level of the unconscious. Well, the, adi- the, the mouse felt that whatever the solution to its hunger, its pain, or anything like that, was wrapped up in the drug. The shortest distance between starvation and living was not through the food. It was through the drug. And so the drug was survival. Do you understand what happens in addiction? That the drug becomes survival. They are inseparable on the level of the unconscious. This is silk allergy. This is what he was always talking about. The, the, the addicted brain is now different. It's, something has changed. This isn't just a beer anymore, you understand. This is life itself. This isn't just a pile of white powder at a party. This is the main way of getting by. And so what is the variable that does cause the difference? I brought you all this way. What is the cause? Well, it's stress. It's essentially a, a malresponse of the stress system. Essentially, when these stress hormones build up, the cortex, if it doesn't know what to do, eventually they will build up so much that the job will fall to the midbrain. And the midbrain says, listen to you, this stress of yours, you better do something about it, because it is starting to affect our ability to make it. You go out in the world and you find me something. And when that something comes along, okay, how does, it, how does the brain know that it's found something? By surges of dopamine. Essentially, what these stress hormones do is they go to the dopamine system and they break it. When the, when the stress builds up and the cortex is clueless, the midbrain turns on and the dopamine system essentially breaks. The patient becomes anhedonic. Now, I don't know about you, but I learned that there were five senses in grade school. Turns out, that's not true. There's more than a dozen of them. And one of the perceptual systems that we have is the ability to tell the difference between broccoli and chocolate cake. Okay? Now, if you get a, a, a defect in this perceptual system, that's called blindness. No one's gonna question your morality if you can't perceive light correctly, right? If you've got a defect in this perceptual system, that's called deafness. No one's gonna try and throw you in jail or take away your kid. But that word, that word is very loaded. It comes with a lot of moral baggage. You get a, you, things that are very pleasurable, or suspect, things that are very, very pleasurable must be immoral. So, the person who develops a defect in that perceptual system is much more likely to be interpreted as being immoral before they're ever seen to, as being akin to deaf or blind. But that is, in fact, what's going on. The drug is tagged as the number one survival coping mechanism, and it moves to the top of the list. And the frontal cortex, the thinking, law abiding, decent choice part of the brain, it's off. We have evolved the ability to turn the influence of the cortex down in, in, in survival situations. And so it's not that addicts don't have values, or that they don't love, or that they don't feel remorse. They do, I assure you. I think we all... I'm reaching to the crier here. It is just that in the midst of this survival panic, they cannot draw upon those values to guide their behaviors. The midbrain now reigns, and conscious thought becomes constricted. Is that denial? Okay. But it's not badness. So the first part of addiction is where the drug is misperceived and survival salience is attached to it. It now is life. But then, and this is is the thing that I don't think anyone's realizing except us. Then what happens? Science has gone this far. What happens next? Then that message, that aberrant perception of cocaine significance or alcohol or whatever is carried upstairs. The median forebrain bundle takes it upstairs. And where does the median forebrain bundle go? From the VTA to the NA, right into the frontal cortex. Right into the part of the brain that handles our deepest emotional connections. That forms our self. That gives meaning to the objects that enter our world. And so, this is the point at which the drug takes on pain, 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 pain. That's the second part of addiction. The person sees themselves in the drug. They exert agency through the drug. The world, they push back with the drug. They love the drug. When you hear an alcoholic say that they love alcohol, like they would love a woman or a man, they're not lying. That's the part of the brain that does it. When you hear a stimulant addict say that they, that they missed their drug, that a cocaine addict grieves for cocaine, the they would grieve for their child. Even they don't know what's going on. There it is. You walk up to an addict and you say, you need to learn to live your life never using your drug again, and the tears well up in their eyes. Is that because they can't love? No. This is a better explanation. And so the two tasks of addiction treatment must be A, to give the addict workable tools to manage their stress and decrease their craving, just get them to tomorrow, and B, to find that one thing, and I do believe that every addict has it, that one thing that is a little bit more emotionally meaningful than the drug. Not a lot higher in its power than the drug, just a, well, a little higher in its power than the drug because if you can find that one thing and I don't know what it's going to be is it going to be the love of Jesus Christ is it going to be the fact that their child is so important to them is it the fact that they're the best at their work at what they do if you can just find that one thing then you can displace the drug with it and shove it in there and since we cannot listen to the narrative of addicts we have not been able to do that we force meaning on patients so medicine is very very good at this part but it is AA that works on meaning meaning the power of AA, I could never improve on this, the words are by Francie Emerson. The power of AA is one alcoholic sitting down with another alcoholic. And the two of them sharing so deeply that the newcomer is profoundly moved to take steps that he doesn't even yet believe in. That he's no longer alone. He says, the old timer says, you know what, I'm not going to tell you about your drinking. I don't know about your drinking or your Demerol shooting. Let me just tell you a little about my Demerol shooting. And as the e- newcomer listens, three or she says, How does he know? How does he know how I love alcohol, how I miss cocaine? And it is in the power of that shared meaning that you've got to have a chance. That's why AA works in ways that medicine never will. Because yes, addiction fits the disease model. We can now fit it in there. But here's the thing. There is no place to put meaning. There is no place to put higher power. It's a powerful model, but it is a reductive and materialist model. And so it cannot address that second part of what addiction is. Yes, the organism midbrain, the defect is a stress-induced dysregulation and the symptoms are loss of control, craving, and and this is the one that pisses everybody off, persistent use despite negative consequences. But the problem with the disease model is that it strips power from the patient and gives it to the doctor it allows the patient to seek refuge in the sick role it doesn't trust the patient to go out and find that meaning it forces a material solution what's the pill, what's the surgery I think he said it just beautifully Judy. <laughs> the relationship, the meaning is what is important not the gastric bypass <laughs> but this model will always say ok, gastric bypass, ok, meridia because it cannot do otherwise. And so, the problems we have calling addiction a disease that addicts will just call everything a disease that they won't take responsibility are not problems with whether addiction fits the disease model. They're problems with the disease model itself. And addicts are blamed for the problems inherent in the model. Punishment won't work because the drug is survival. Nothing can top survival. Survival is a top brick in the pyramid. So you cannot bring any leverage against survival. You can't bring kids or marriage or any of those things to bear, because the addict gets a message that says, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, hey, come on down now, all right? We're going to take care of the kids. We are. We're going to straighten everything out with the probation officer or the medical board. But, but today, you know, Thursday, we're under a lot of stress. Yes, we are. And and, and we're interpreting that stress on the level of survival. So we're going to take care of those things. Everything's going to be fine tomorrow. But today, you're going to give me that goddamn drug." And that is a message that most addicts know. So is addiction really a disease? Well, if we believe it, it's our actions that show that. Because here's the thing something very happened, once something very important happened, once we were finally able to call addiction a disease, addicts became patients. You can't just say addiction's a disease. Now that we can prove it, addicts sit down at the table with the diabetic and the patient with the broken leg they have now all the same rights as every other patient. All the rules that apply to the treatment of other patients now apply to addicts. Addicts have tebid, 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 tebid. So when you come up against things like the willingness requirement, well, I've, I've got to ask myself the question, in what other area of medicine do we use that? Okay? Do I use that at the ER door? Excuse me, sir, you know, you look like you got a broken leg. I mean, you got that screaming and that bleeding and that bone sticking out and all. But i got to tell you, I don't know if you're really willing to get better, right? I, I don't know if you're, if you're really, you know, if you hit bottom. Maybe if I see some signs that you're willing. Maybe if you go up to the OR and intubate yourself and I see these signs, then I'll come up and I'll fix your broken leg. What the hell going on there? <laughs> right? We don't do that in medicine, okay? Random testing. Why do we test randomly? Do I have a random EKG testing policy in, in every CCU? Sir, you've had a heart attack. Let me tell you a little bit about our random EKG policy. <laughs> you, you might get two tomorrow. You, you might not get one for a week. No, we don't do that. We pay someone $25 an hour to watch their tracing. And if they so much sip of tea wave, we're on it. So the new standard of care in addiction medicine should be what we would do for any other critically injured patient. Every three-day testing. And once you've got 100 tests, what do you have? You have a documented cake. So the disparity is the problem. What would happen if we took the punishment out? Would treatment improve? If we had just one group of patients that we didn't punish, maybe we could see that the treatment outcome would be better. I've got a couple more minutes. Is there one group of addicts we don't punish? Yes, there is. And you're going to be a little surprised to hear who they are. For 35 years, the United States Navy has known that if they take a zero-tolerance, kick-ass attitude towards alcoholism, their mishap rate goes up. But if they tell their pilots, listen, we know some of you are going to become alcoholics, we don't like that, but if it happens, please, come to us. No harm, no foul, we won't throw you out, we'll get you the best treatment money you can buy, because you matter to us, your skills are valuable. And the Navy has had a very very good success rate with this, and the man who invented it, a true hero in our presence, is Dr. Perch. This guy has something meaningful. It's not about carrots and sticks. Flying defines him. And so you have something very near the surface that you can displace the alcohol with. Not only that, these people know that they're capable. They do capable things all the time. Look, that's this. All right? Pull back on the stick, push forward on the stick. Right? <laughs> How does it get smaller? How does it get bigger? Boom, not two. All right? You can't do that all day and not get a pretty good idea of what your capabilities are. The Navy has silver so living houses. They do. They're called aircraft carriers. Right? <laughs> now, that, that's a pretty ship to you with flags and waves. To me, that is a big, gray factory. And what do we do? We take the worker, we put them back in the work situation, and we monitor them very carefully to keep that safety margin high. And if he relapses in this environment, is he some bag alcoholic? Does the the CO say, get that alcoholic out of here. No, he's a fellow pilot. There is no stigma because we love pilots. We see them as pilots before we ever attach that stigma to them. And what's the result? The Navy has a 95% return to flying status rate. in it's treated alcoholic pilots. Not 3%, not 10%, 95%. The program was so good that United Airlines copied it. In 1968, they figured that they had an 87% return to flying status rate. Now, United Airlines is not going to tell you that they got this program, right? (laughs) They're not going to say, hey, welcome to Flight 87. Captain Dave went to his AA meeting today. (laughs) And he blew green in his breathalyzer, and now he's going to fly to Detroit. (laughs) No, they're not going to tell you that. (laughs) But these programs have been working, not for a little while, for 35 years. And so treatments that address meaning will essentially be the treatments of the future. This is the most important book in addiction medicine. I hope that you will get a copy of it. Whenever I feel down, I read the first chapter. It is beautiful. Make sure you get the first edition. The second edition is a little less radical. Here's another important book. Believe it or not, harm reduction is the only ethically consistent treatment on the horizon. You can treat patients who are still drinking. Asking the patient to come to treatment... Willing to stop drinking is asking the patient to come to treatment half-treated. It's a way of getting the patient to do my work for me. Is it easier? Oh, you bet. But that doesn't mean that we should cut out all those people. Is it harder? Absolutely. Do I want them to eventually get to abstinence and AA? That's what I want. But we could, cannot cut them off and, and essentially be ethically sound. And if you think these are radical ideas, here are two famous harm reductionists. And if you go back and look at the early days of AA, this movement rep- looks much, much more like the harm reduction programs you see today than it, than it did. The changes only occurred when medicine came in. And so., pat it's pat pat on, it's No, there's Freddie again. Does anyone have any questions? It's kind of kind of revolutionary stuff. I'll grant you. <laughs> Come to the microphone if you had it.
1: Or comments. That was terrific. Thank you very much. I come from Australia where the current model that uh, is in use is uh, the biopsychosocial theory or model of uh, addiction. Uh, The comments I'd like to make are that uh, we uh, have a a very thriving. AANA network, but we also have a very thriving methadone program Mm -hmm. uh, or uh, pharmacotherapy or substitution program. Right. Uh, Secondly, our incarceration rate is less than 10% of the the rate here, and I was just uh, wondering if you'd have any comments on uh, that. I'm I'm
0: going to make a shocking statement again. I think it's very, very difficult to get a really level-headed attitude about addiction as a United States physician, one has to back up several steps to really get an idea of what's going on. And many of the really cutting-edge ideas are going on in Europe and in countries like Australia. It is not a matter of you know, saying to the patient, that's it, you have to meet our needs. It's about meeting the patient's needs. And in the United States, we do not let methadone give it, get, it, get a fair shot. Now, hopefully that will change with buprenorphine. I mean, what an am- I can't believe that we were able to get that through.
1: We've had, we've had buprenorphine for quite some time. Too. Yeah.
0: And, and again, what do I want for the patient? I want them to eventually go to AA, but I can't bring a dead body to AA. And I should not let the, 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 the ideology overwhelm the need of the patient. The patient comes first. Unfortunately, the disease model... Uh, forces us into a neo-Kantian um, principleist view of these are the principles you have to do it there are better ethics to use and one of them is Carol Gilligan's ethic of care it's a much much better way a lot of the problems that we have using this neo-Kantian view disappear once you use an ethic of care yes sir yeah,
1: Kevin thank you great job How are you? Yeah. Uh, one observation uh, the success rate uh, for the pilots and for physicians is based on coerced treatment, you know, which is well, something you
0: speak out against. See. Here's, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead.
1: But uh, uh, maybe you can comment on that. The second thing is, is that when the uh, punitive drug rat laws were passed in the early 90s, uh, uh-huh. I think a par- part of the problem resides within the treatment programs that were in place at the time because we've never really been able to show good outcomes. And uh, they'd spent a lot of money on treatment programs, and the recidivism rate was so high that they kind of threw out the baby with the bathwater because we haven't been able to prove our product. Do you have
0: any comments on how we might be able to improve our results. Well, part of it is, I mean, there's a lot to overcome, and one is the, the current belief that addicts lie. Addicts are no more liars than what we don't meet them with. I mean, they, they will lie to the ex- exact extent that we don't support them. However, if you test them every three days... See, I, can't, I don't know what anybody's treatment outcome is unless I know a test every day. I want two breathalyzers a day, and I want a test every three days. Because how do I know that the patient is sober? Testing here and there, that's not going to do it. And so that should be the standard of care. That will give us leverage to show, see, this really works. Here is a hundred tests. This person is sober. They've got a cake and it's made out of steel. And that's one thing that we have to change. But now here, about the coerced treatment thing. You see, I I get this from a lot of physicians. They say, I never would have gotten sober without that hammer. How do you know? How do you know that it was the hammer? You see, this is the problem with behaviorism. It says, well, if you just use carrots and sticks effectively enough, you'll get them sober. But then how is it that punishment, you know, persistent use despite negative consequences, is a feature of addiction? It doesn't make any sense. Sometimes the punishment's working, sometimes it isn't. And if that's the variable that's getting sober, you have to back up one causal step and say, well, what's that? And that is meaning. You cannot actually, it's not the hammer, it's not the carrots and the sticks. It's the fact that this person loves to be a doctor. They want to fly, and they define themselves through that role. It's not the behaviorist illusion. It is the meaning, and that's something that AA has always known, and medicine is still struggling with. It is not the hammer. When a a counselor tells me, I can't see patients without a hammer, what they're really telling me is, they can't see patients. Because it becomes unethical. You cannot parse one group of patients out and say, well, these are different patients. It's a disease, but these are addicts. We've got to kick ass. That essentially puts all patients at risk. The pediment of the United States Supreme Court has four words on it. Equal protection under law. It has to be equal protection under stethoscope. I don't care if coerced treatment gets 100% of people sober. It's no longer ethically tenable. It has to stop How will you be able to do this? With medicine? With the law. With the law. I just want to say one more thing. To all the gay and lesbian folks who are here, my very, very heartiest congratulations on Lawrence v. Texas. That, for you, for all of Americans, was a wonderful, wonderful decision. If addicts simply do what the gay and lesbian and the AIDS movement do, in 20 years, we will have our own Lawrence v. Texas. And people will no longer be able to treat us less than Just follow what they did. Does anyone else have any other questions? Thanks very much. (laughs) Thanks very
1: much.